The Lead from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast if you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mytel.com forward slash mark. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Before we get going officially, I wanted to note this is the final episode of our season. And while I'd love to tease you by saying that we haven't yet decided whether or not we're coming back, well, we've already begun working on new episodes and look forward to sharing them with you in July. And when I do return, I also look forward to telling you about my new book that's coming out in late August. I spent the last year writing a second edition of Lead from the Heart, and it's essentially an entirely new book. And it's no understatement to say that it represents my entire life's work. And so I'm very, very excited to launch it into the world and to get it into your hands. And perhaps by no coincidence, our final episode features work that is just massively validating for the whole Lead from the Heart thesis. Our guest today is Leonard Mladenow, who happens to be a theoretical physicist, a former professor at the California Institute of Technology, or Caltech, and the author of five best-selling books, including The Grand Design, which he co-authored with the late Stephen Hawking, which reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. But he joins us today because of his new book, Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking, which confirms that humans aren't the rational beings we've always believed. In fact, we were all taught that thinking rationally is the key to success. But at the cutting edge of science, researchers are discovering that feeling is every bit as important as thinking. We make hundreds of decisions every day, from what to eat for breakfast to how we should invest, and not one of these decisions would be possible without emotion. It's long been said that thinking and feeling are separate and opposing forces in our behavior. But as Leonard tells us, extraordinary advances in psychology and neuroscience have proven that emotions are as critical to our well-being as thinking. Emotions shape virtually every thought we have, he writes. They contribute moment to moment to all of our judgments and decisions, even when we believe we are exercising cold, logical reason. Gratefully, Monno's work offers a state-of-the-art understanding of how to apply this knowledge in leadership, which is why we invited him to come and join us. And as I'm recording this introduction right after recording his interview, all I can say is he's one of the most interesting and brilliant guests we've ever had on. Welcome to the podcast, Leonard. Glad to be here, Mark. Well, thank you. Loved your book. I want to get into it right now. And at the very beginning, you assert that, and I'll even quote you, that emotions affect thinking. Our emotional state influences our mental calculations as much as the objective data on circumstances we are pondering, end quote. So that's pretty powerful. To get us started, tell us why this knowledge is so important and how it overrides traditional beliefs. Well, in at least in Western cultures, the traditional belief was that the logical, rational mind and the emotional mind are number one, separate, <laughs> and number two, at odds with each other. And it turns out that both those ideas are wrong. We do no thinking at all that is not heavily influenced by our emotion. And our emotion is not a, a negative quality. It actually evolved for a purpose, and it serves that purpose of 
leading us to better decisions. So when you said it evolves for a purpose and it leads us to making better decisions, tell us why. Well, think about what happens. Your brain is an information processor. It takes data in and gives an output, which is either a thought, a decision, an impulse, a behavior. And that, of course, is something that organisms have to do in order to deal with the world when you're faced with whatever circumstance you come upon. But in making that calculation of what you think or what you do, your brain doesn't just rely on the data. It relies on its memories, on your beliefs, on your knowledge, on your goals, your long-term and your short-term goals. And in each case, when it's looking for memories, let's say, or looking at a belief or, a, or some bit of knowledge, your brain has to assess whether that's relevant and whether it's believable, how skeptical should you be, and how important are those factors. And in all that, all that other than the pure logical processing, all that other stuff is heavily affected by your emotions. And your emotions have evolved in a way to form a, a kind of a set of influences that are appropriate for whatever circumstance you're in. So if you're being threatened by a bear, a weight that you give to certain elements of your environment or certain memories or beliefs that you have are different than the weight that you would give if you're happily walking through a field. What each emotion is, is a state of mental processing. It's a different state that's appropriate to the situation that you're in, and it helps your logical processing come to the answer that's appropriate for the situation that you're in. So that's why we evolved emotions. It's a way of enabling our rational thinking to be appropriate and fitting and come to a quicker conclusion given the situation that we're in. And we're not aware of this most of the time, are we? No, it's not. A lot of it happens. And of course, you have conscious feelings of emotions, but most of this is happening on the unconscious level. You see your unconscious mind can process a lot more information than your conscious mind. And so this is a gift that we have, that we have this unconscious processing that's going on and in a very fast and complex manner. And the answers are given to us <laughs> into our conscious minds to consider then. It's an extra layer that we have that other animals have less of. Let me just say, I guess, that most animals, most of the behavior of most animals is what we call reflexive or fixed action patterns. That is, they encounter a, a stimulus in the environment and they react in a certain way. So it's stimulus response. And that works very well if you, if you only encounter situations that you've encountered before, that your species has encountered before. So these are hardwired into you. Or if things don't change very much. But if things are changing or you're encountering new situations, that stimulus response doesn't really necessarily work that well because it hasn't been tailored to that situation. But in the human or in the emotional way of processing, what happens is the stimulus stimulates an emotion, that emotion does not directly give you the response. It gives you a feeling and a set of parameters that, that will guide your thinking. And then you use your rational thinking along with that to determine the response. So it's much more flexible than the stimulus response system. So the feeling comes before the thought. Is that correct? Well, the feeling comes before the thought. Exactly where the feeling comes in the process is something that's being debated. Your body when you're in a certain situation, tends to have physical reactions as well as feeling reactions. And those are heavily intertwined, but the result of the mental processing comes later. What's the debate? Well, the debate over emotions has to do with the traditional theory of emotion versus this new revolutionary new theory. And the traditional theory really goes back to Charles Darwin. Darwin thought that there were six basic emotions that were far more important than other emotions. 
fear, anger, joy, sadness, disgust, and surprise. And he felt that each of them was stimulated by a specific trigger and caused a certain reaction. And he felt that they were each distinct. We loosely say that there's an emotion called fear, for example, but that fear isn't really one emotion. And the same is true of the other emotion categories that we name. Scientists have shown in experiments, for example, that the mental processes that lead to fear of a scorpion crawling on your arm are far different than the ones that lead to fear of suffocation. For example, one goes through the amygdala, the other doesn't. So we know now that it's far more nuanced, that the different emotions are really categories that collect subcategories of emotions. Also, we know that the boundary between emotions is not as sharp as we thought. It's sometimes difficult to distinguish between fear and anxiety. Uh, We know that there are not specific parts of the brain that are associated with one emotion or another, that it's much more complicated than that. Back in the 90s, I remember Mm -hmm. the amygdala being called the fear organ, right? That fear goes through the amygdala. Well, guess what? Many emotions go through the amygdala and not all fear goes through the amygdala. So that's not true either. So we've learned that it's a lot more complex system than, than we used to think. I think the Darwinian picture is something like the old Greek picture of the atoms. They were right that there's atoms. Everything's made of atoms. They're so, so to speak, indivisible. Now we know that that part is kind of true. Even though atoms aren't indivisible, there are elementary particles that are indivisible and everything's made of this. But the details, which seemed intuitively correct to them, we now know are not true. And this is just due to a lot of advances in technology, especially in uh, neuroimaging and in something called optogenetics, where scientists can control individual neurons and other techniques that have just come online in the last 10 or 20 years. So one big question is, is that feeling that's going on, is that happening in some part of the brain or is that distributed through the body? And if so, where specifically? Well, for each emotion, it's different and it's very complicated. There's not a specific place where you feel disgust or fear or love. There are systems of nodes that are involved in that and we're still trying to understand that. But the really important take-home point is that there's no center There's no uh, one place where that's the center of love or fear or hate or whatever the emotion is. When you say there's no place, but it's not explicit to the mind, is that correct? It's part of the brain. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, but is it exclusive to the brain? Yeah, there are parts of the brain. And right, say you use a chemical to block a certain node in the brain, that may preclude, let's say, an animal from exhibiting fear. That doesn't mean that fear is centered there. It just means that that's one node one component of fear goes through there and that you, maybe that's necessary for that particular flavor of fear, but it doesn't mean there aren't other areas that are also necessary for that. And it doesn't mean that that's sufficient to feel fear. It just means that that's one part of the brain that is involved in fear. I was just wondering if there's any feeling and sensation outside of the brain. No, scientists don't believe that. You know, my friend Deepak Chopra does. So, <laughs> however, in the, in the science of emotion, uh, we say it's all in the brain and it's all governed by the physical laws of, if you dig deep enough, it's the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the same laws that govern rocks and stars and bacteria govern the human brain. And what does Deepak Chopra believe, just out of curiosity? Well, you should have him on the show. I hesitate to speak for him, but he believes in a a universal consciousness that we all share and we're all somehow part of the universe and that there's a soul that's outside of the mind, that it's not the same. And, you know, that's about 
the depth that I feel I can get into without risking mischaracterizing. No, that's fair. That's fair. I'm intentional with some of these questions here because the big picture is that feelings and emotions are having a far greater sway over how we behave in the world than most of us realize. And so as that is a premise, knowing that this is a leadership podcast, what's the importance of that? In other words, what should a workplace leader understand? Yeah, we have to understand how our decisions are made. So, for example, there was a, a famous study in the 90s before all the stock market was so computerized. And they studied, well, there's there several studies, actually, not just one, different stock markets around the world, the New York Stock Exchange and other markets in Europe and Asia. And they looked at the weather patterns and they selected just the days that were sunny and then they also selected the days that were overcast or rainy all day. And they found that the markets did, I think it was a 20% better on the sunny days than on the rainy days. So these were traders, you know, in each case, there were traders that were going to work every day. They're making their judgments based on presumably hard data about the stocks and what they're worth. They were not thinking that they're being influenced by their mood or their emotion. And yet they obviously were. So what you have to realize as a leader or as anyone in the financial world making decisions and evaluations is that your emotions have a great effect. I'm looking at a, buying a, a vacation home now. And when I look at that home, I have to look at the price, the price per square foot, the comps, the various aspects of it that I appreciate, that I like, the views or whatever. I have to look at the interest rates and where they're going. Am I going to be able to afford this five years from now? Is it going to go up or down and all these hard data judgments I have to make. And yet in analyzing that, I'm drawing upon memories and past experiences and beliefs and knowledge. And my emotions are guiding me with regard to which ones to pick and how to weight them. So my decision on buying the house would be different if I'm in an anxious state, which has a tendency to move you toward more pessimistic evaluations versus a happy state in which you're exploratory and looking for new experiences. So you have to realize that along with your logical data analysis that you're doing comes a sheath or a clothing of emotion that really dresses it up and guides it. And then the decisions can be quite different depending on your emotion state. And when you're leading people, you have to understand that about yourself and you have to understand that about them. And the more you understand what drives their thoughts and their behavior, the more insight you have into them, the better a leader you'll be. Studies show, in fact, that people with greater emotional intelligence make greater leaders and are more successful in business. It's not just one dimensional. It's not just, hey, I'm making this decision and my emotions could be impacting it like your vacation home. But how do leaders use this information to influence their people? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, it's really important in leading people is that they are satisfied with their job and the goals and that they are motivated in a way that we call intrinsic rather than extrinsic. So you can always find people to do any job if you give them enough money to do it. But you'll find that the job is done better if they're doing it because they want to do it, because they believe in the team or they believe in your goals or they just have a personal relationship with you. That's what leadership is, is to get people on the same page to want to do their job and to be successful for something deeper than financial reward. And again and again, the studies show that what's important is to understand other people's emotional states 
and how that affects their thinking. And also on the other side, your own emotional state. And when you're dealing with someone to be able to understand and not just understand, but to, when it comes to you to regulate your emotion state. So there are different methods you can use to regulate your own emotional state. And it's important that you don't, for example, if you're angry at someone that you learn how to control that, that if you have an emotion of fear or anxiety, that seems to be exaggerated. How do you get that under control? All these tools for your emotional life are very important. That's great. So let's take a step back a little bit. 2,000 years ago, you write that Plato believed that emotions and rationality work together harmoniously. But in centuries since, we've come to believe that both aspects of mental life worked in opposition to each other. As you said at the beginning, reason was viewed as superior, even holy, and emotions were to be avoided or contained. So how did we come to marginalize the heart and feelings like this and for so very long? And then what's finally changing it? I mean, is it just technology that's giving you greater access to understanding about the role that feelings play in shaping our thinking? Well, the modern cultural view of emotion is really due to Darwin. And Darwin was interested in emotion from the point of view of evolution, of course, to see how emotion fits into evolution. And why did animals and humans evolve emotion and what purpose do they serve? Because, of course, in the theory of evolution, these are a major aspect of an animal's mental processing. There must be a reason for it. And he concluded that there were a couple of reasons for that. And by the way, he did a major detailed studies of animals and their expression of emotion and of humans across different cultures. And he concluded that emotions had a couple purposes. One is a quick reaction. Remember, I talked about stimulus response. So mm -hmm. an emotion was a quick way to get a, a response to a situation. Something happens, it triggers fear. That triggers a certain behavior. Also to communicate amongst animals. So if you're threatening me or if you're flirting with my um, mate, and I'm an ape, I make a certain face and that says stand back or I'm going to attack you and I'm fierce, right? Or something like that. And so those are the main reasons that Darwin thought we have emotion. And he concluded that in humans, that emotion is outmoded because we have language to express ourselves. We don't need to make faces. And we have logical, rational processing. So we don't really need emotion to help us figure out how to behave. And that caught on in popular culture, and that was also in science, and people added on to that with their studies of where certain emotions they believed were centered in the brain. And that went on for 100, what, 150 years or so was pretty much the way people thought. And the whole field of psychology got revolutionized over around approximately the last 20 years. It used to be behavioral science where people could only set up usually artificial conditions in the laboratory and study people's responses and behaviors to that in response to that. But now with modern technology, we can do a couple of other things. One is we can study people in vivo and in real life, for example, using the internet, computers, we can study people's behavior on social media. And there's a record of it that we can actually analyze rather than having to bring them into the lab. We still do laboratory studies, but that was one great revolutionary advance and another one, another set, another category of advances come in the technology that F, functional magnetic resonance imaging allows you to see what parts of the brain are active at any given time. Something called optogenetics, which allows uh, scientists to stimulate individual neurons. There's a lot of study about ways now to study the connectivity of the brain so you can see which neurons are talking to other neurons. 
And a lot of work in all these areas has been illuminating what's going on in the brain, which we can then connect to the psychology. And so it's made psychology a much more we call hard science, not hard in the sense of difficult, but somehow it's a metaphor, hard in the sense of knock, 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 knock as wood, as mm-hmm. opposed to a soft science that you can mush around. Mm-hmm. And so the advances in different aspects of psychology have been amazing. And, and in particular, something called affective neuroscience has come up. That's affective means emotion, feelings. Neuroscience has really exploded in the last 10, 15 years. And in my book, I have a graph of the papers. You can see, you know, year by year, the number of papers, and it's just exponentially exploding, fueled by all these advances in technology and these discoveries that emotions don't work the way we thought they did. That's fascinating. One of the things that you talk a lot about in the book is the difference between positive emotions and negative emotions and how they impact us. Obviously, one negative emotion is fear. We understand how that influences us. But can you talk about the human experience and what positive emotions do to us and their impact on our thinking and our behavior and the same for negative emotions? Well, for many years, decades, positive emotions were ignored by the scientific community. I think the reason being that negative emotions sometimes cause problems if We have a disorder where you feel an exaggerated tendency toward a certain negative emotion. So people were, for instance, sadness, depression, or anger management problems. People studied those emotions more than they did the positive emotions, which didn't seem to need, you know, to cause any problems. But from the scientific point of view, it's very interesting and necessary to understand why we have those as well. And especially recently, people have been studying that. And what they find is that, well, let's say happiness Positive emotions tend to open your thinking to allow you to have more creativity and exploratory behavior. You're When you're feeling a positive emotion, such as happiness, you're more exploratory, you're more curious, you're more willing to take chances. As I said, emotion is a state of mental processing or a state of mind. And when you're in that happiness state, then you're making judgments that are biased in those directions that I mentioned. When you're in a negative emotion state, those tend to be focused, not open. They're focused on a specific problem, fear of the beer or disgust at the food that you just ate. They're a very focused response to a given situation that requires action. So that's the difference between the positive and the negative emotions at the high level in, in general. So how can individual managers, workplace managers, leverage that information in terms of the experience that they're trying to create for the people that work for them? Well, one thing is to realize that happy workers are better workers. So it's not just out of altruism that you form a workplace where people are happy to come to. It actually will benefit you. You'll have people who are more creative, more innovative. Also looking at the other end, that people who are angry, or feeling a negative emotion about some specific situations are not going to be your best workers because they are too focused on that. And and their thinking also gets tuned to the situation that's causing their emotion rather than perhaps to what might be more relevant to their work. So if they're angry at you because you just said something nasty to them, that anger is going to carry over. And now as they're making decisions, they're making decisions that are biased toward the things that, that are relevant for anger probably not suited 
for the situation in the workplace that they're actually handling. One of the things that you stressed on top of this was fascinating to me is that when people are experiencing fear, anxiety, negative emotions, that scientists like you have found that those states influence them to be pessimistic. So they start to wallow in a pessimism, which obviously is not an ideal state of mind or being to be in when you're working. So the brain tends to choose the most pessimistic option of what's happening. I thought I had to ask you, why is that bias happening? And like, how does that ever created inside of us? Why is it important to understand it? And how does it play out in the real world? Well, let's take anxiety, for example. Anxiety is like fear, but fear is related to a specific situation, concrete situation that's actually occurring, whereas anxiety is more vague and it's about something that might occur in the future. And the reason that if something happens to trigger your anxiety, for example, I'm told by a doctor that the fact that my parents had melanoma makes me a candidate for melanoma. Now I suddenly have anxiety. I don't have a particular mole that's a problem, but I have a generalized anxiety because of what my doctor just told me. That gives me a pessimistic bias with regard to moles. <laughs> that's fitting, right? Because the doctor said, you're in danger of developing melanoma. Now my brain starts interpreting what I see as a danger, it broadens the interpretation. So if I see a mole that looks a little funny, I'm worried that it might be a melanoma. Well, that's a pessimistic bias. Before I was told that, I would not have thought twice about that mole. Why is that useful? Well, guess what? Sometimes a mole could be melanoma. So now I'm showing I'm going twice a year to the doctor and the doctor's looking at my skin. So I'm keeping those appointments. Who wants to go to the doctor? I don't like it. I never do, but I go. And if I see a suspicious mole, I bring it to the doctor's attention because it might be melanoma because I have anxiety. I have a pessimistic bias and that could save my life. That's why we have it. That's why it all developed. And people have found that it's interesting. There's been studies on people who tend to have either too much anxiety, so they have an anxiety disorder, or too little anxiety. Nothing seems to make them anxious. And they found that compared to normal people, both tend to have a shorter lifespan. So if you have too much anxiety, a disorder of too much anxiety, you tend to have a lot of cortisol in your blood, a stress hormone, and that's bad for you. If you have too little anxiety, you'll do silly things. Yeah, you get eaten by the wolf, right? <laughs> you'll get eaten by the wolves or you won't go to the doctor when you see the mole, right? So I mean, it's a good example for all emotions. They have a specific purpose. They put you in a certain specific state of mind that's appropriate to the situations that trigger them. And your brain then, your conscious mind, works with all those feelings to figure out what actions you should take as opposed to a pure stimulus response that is the other way of working. So, but this pessimism can also work against you. So let me see if you can validate this scenario. I'm making it up as I go here, but let's say I'm doing really good work. I complete a project. You're my boss and I hand over this project to you. You know, I give you the final results or I give you the report and you look it over and you say, oh, okay, I need you now to get on to the next project. And there's no, Mark, you did a really great job. I'm really appreciative. This came early. Look at your conclusions. They're so smart. They're so well done. I got none of that. So in response, could I go into pessimism about 
my boss Leonard doesn't think I'm doing a good job and you know I don't know if I'm going to have a good career here or even if I'm going to have a career here is he going to let me go does it work like that too well it could work like that and that could be appropriate it could be meaningful <laughs> <laughs> or it could mean nothing that's why people with high emotional intelligence will recognize the difference so if you focus on such things and you've been working there a while you'll know your boss's habits. Does your boss always normally say, Mark, great job? Or to all the other people, does your boss say, great job? I mean, I know someone, I won't say who it is, who's a CEO and was telling me when he wants to get rid of somebody, he tends to just start giving them the cold shoulder mm. and they get the message usually and they look for another job. He said, I have subtle ways of having people, I don't like to call people in and tell them explicitly what's going on and have a confrontation, but the people that, you know, that work for me can tell when if I think they're not doing a good job and they start looking. Well, I'm not saying recommending that one way or another, but I'm saying some bosses do that. And so if you're the person under that boss, it's good to understand, is that how my boss behaves? You know, how does my boss behave? You observe. And if you have high emotional intelligence, you're attuned to that. And then you know, you'll you'll know what that message is. Maybe your boss always says that, doesn't say that to you ever any differently or doesn't act differently to anybody. Or maybe the boss usually does, but maybe next time your boss will do it again. You'll have to know. You also have to keep in mind something they call in psychology, which is called a fundamental attribution error. That's a fancy word for saying you always think it's about you. (laughs) (laughs) And guess what? Your boss could have just had an argument with her spouse. And maybe she gave you that cold shoulder because she's actually not even thinking about you. (laughs) She's upset with something else. Or she's had taken shit from her boss and so on. So, you know, you have to look at things, I think, on a more statistical level. And and any given instance, it's hard to tell. But you have to have a feeling for how does my boss usually behave and an understanding that the way my boss is behaving toward me might have nothing to do with me. It may have to do with other circumstances. And you have to factor that all in and use your emotional intelligence to figure out what the probabilities are. I've never put those pieces together, the fundamental attribution error, meaning it's not about you, but independent, that advice of it's not about you is probably true like 90% of the time anyway. So right. That's really good. You talk about core effect in your book and you describe how it impacts people. And I just thought rather than me setting it up and defining it, I hand that over to you. So core affect is a very interesting phenomenon or trait that humans have. It's a kind of a proto-emotion or a, a more basic feeling than an emotion. For example, it's and it's something that emotions are also built on. So your core affect that you feel will influence the emotion that you experience at any given moment. But let me just define what it is. The mind and body are very closely related. People have been saying that in various circles for a long time, but now science is starting to investigate it in a scientific way, and it certainly seems to be true. And your core affect is a kind of a monitor of your bodily state. Are you starving? Are you well-fed? Are you hungry? Are you hot? Are you cold? Are you in between? Are you tired or did you have enough sleep? All these aspects of your well-being are monitored constantly by your brain. So as opposed to emotions, which are the result of situations and come and go, the core affect is a kind of a constant monitoring thermometer of your body. Is it in health or is it in danger? And it only has two dimensions. So core affect does not 
have different directions such as love, hate, fear, anxiety, awe, embarrassment, and so forth like emotions do. It's just all it has is positive or negative. So core affect is either positive or it's negative or neutral in between. And it has a strength. So it has what we call a valence, positive or negative, and a strength, which they call arousal. How aroused are you with regard to that? So you might feel strongly positive or weakly negative or whatever. And that's a monitor of your current situation. Does you have a headache? Are you cold? Are you sick? Are you well? And so that's what we call core affect. And your core affect does affect your behavior and your decisions in a fundamental way that you're not aware of. That is, uh, you'll make different decisions given the same data if you're in opposite states of core affect. If you're tired and hungry, for example, versus well-fed and well-rested, you will often make a different decision given the same input. Uh, There's a good study, if you want, I can just briefly mention, of parole Judges. Uh, judges. Parole, mm-hmm. yeah, judges who are judging whether prisoners should be let free. And that's a very stressful job because you don't want to keep someone another three years or whatever the term is and deny them parole if they're really rehabilitated and not a danger to society. On the other hand, you certainly don't want to let someone go who's going to commit a crime again and end up back and hurt somebody. So it's a tough job. It's stressful and they don't have much time. They have hearing after hearing after hearing and it's very exhausting. And these scientists realize that at the beginning of the day, say nine o'clock, the core affect of these judges is going to be pretty positive. They're bright eyed and bushy tailed. And by the lunch break, they've been worn down. They're hungry. They're exhausted. What's the effect on their decisions? And they found that they made a graph. It's really amazing that the percentage of parole applications granted is much, much higher at the beginning of the day, and it declines and declines and declines throughout the day until lunch. Then after lunch, it's up again, and then it declines until the end of the day. And it's crazy to think that whether you get out now or five years from now is determined by whether you know your judge had a donut right. or, or just uh, had lunch. But it's what happens, and they Researchers talked to the judges and asked if they thought this is possible, this was happening. They were unaware that it was happening, and they vehemently denied that that how they felt had anything to do with their judgments. So how does one become self-aware in any given moment? You know, how do you keep your presence? Perfect. Perfect question. Read my book. Okay. Uh, I wish I had the plug bell here, but uh, we are definitely encouraging that. But if you could give us a little glimpse into the answer. No, I mean, I'm not really, it doesn't, I I, I know you're not holding back. I meant it only half facetiously. What you should do is learn about how it all works and think about it. Well, no podcast is ever going to replace the book, obviously. What I was really getting to was just how does one cultivate enough self-awareness to realize, okay, this is probably what's happening to me right now, and this is influencing my behavior. Can people be that self-aware? You can. Well, if you're in therapy, your therapist will help you do that, but you could listen to podcasts like this. You can read books. You just have to make it your goal, and it's not that difficult if you want to do it. And I think that anyone who's in therapy, their therapist is probably working on them to do that as we speak. 
<laughs> I mean, do you need a therapist to help you with that? No, I, I'm saying you don't need a therapist. I think if you listen to this and other podcasts and whatever your source of information is, learn about it. Find a, a reliable source online, read books. Think about yourself too. Just think about the things that I'm saying. Think about the conflicts you had at work or with your spouse and how that went and how emotions played into those interactions. Think about decisions you made and how emotions played into those interactions. Think about other people making decisions if you know them well and and uh, what was going on. So I think it's just it's a matter of one learning about it and two first raising your consciousness that it's important. And secondly, focusing on it therefore, not just letting it go over your head and thirdly, learning about it. I think those three things will go a long way and that increases what they call everyone's hurt emotional intelligence and that's a very important aspect of your life that you should be nurturing. It's not just your IQ intelligence, it's studies show that your emotional intelligence is more important to success than your IQ. How widely believed is that? I think many of us have seen that, read that, heard that. But in terms of real world, how widely have we really embraced it? I think it's very, it's, it's very widely. Of course, I don't mean it in terms of credibility. I mean in terms of applying it to our own life. Like if I'm going to work on something, I'd be smart to work on my emotional intelligence versus my intellectual intelligence. Well, that I don't know. I would guess that the majority of people don't focus on that. But I, I don't know any uh, studies on that and how many people think emotional intelligence is important. And of course, it's that's a rule of thumb. It's within bounds. If your IQ goes so low that you can't function, then... Yeah. Most, <laughs> but I'll tell you an example in my book about my mother when she hit 90 and, and started to uh, have dementia. She lost a lot of her analytical ability. She couldn't tell you what seven plus six is anymore or who was the president. You could have conversation about the past, for example, my childhood or what we're eating or the weather, but nothing really complicated. And yet she was very sophisticated in her emotional intelligence. I could walk into the room and if I had a bad day, she could immediately would ask what's wrong. Or if I'm hungry, she could tell from my face. I mean, it was amazing. So that was, I think, the last thing to go. I don't know if it ever really did go. How do you explain that? That's fantastic. Well, I would say the parts of your brain that are involved in these things are different. But to me, it signifies that it's more basic to humanity, to a person, is the emotional intelligence than the rational, logical thought. Interesting. I want to ask you about another experiment that you wrote about. This is the one that happened a few years ago, Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. And the subjects were involved in this mock negotiation, but not before being given some priming instructions. And I'd like for you to tell us about this and then why specifically workplace managers should learn to consider not just what people are thinking, but also feeling. That's really the big takeaway from this. Well, that was an interesting study. They had different groups of people taking different approaches to the negotiation. It was about, I think, buying a gas station and they gave them all kinds of data about the financial value, but other intangibles, kind of like my vacation home, you know, they had to... They had to balance a lot of things, some of which were quantitative and some were qualitative. And there were mock negotiations between two sides. And one group they told to concentrate on their other side's feelings and how they felt and they were given some training. And on the other side, they were supposed to be more focused on the objective facts. And the people who did better were the ones who focused on feelings. So that shows that the importance of having emotional intelligence rather than running the numbers it was, of course, a laboratory study, but as it indicates that that is very important. 
And when you're doing a negotiation, you're dealing with people and not computers. And so the emotional component can't be ignored. So how do they respond to that? Because I think the leadership takeaway here is that the ones who performed better in the negotiations were much more sensitive to how the other party in the negotiation was feeling at any given point in time. But then they're applying some intelligence to what they're going to do with that. Are you familiar enough with the exercise to explain how that back and forth actually worked? No, I, I don't think it was even in the paper. They just gave the results. So they didn't talk about all the details of what was going on. The key is that when you're negotiating, that you need to really think about, and probably your listeners know this, what's the most important thing is to see the negotiation from the other person's point of view. And don't just look at the numbers, but look at how the other person's feeling. And that's important in life too. So when you say it's important to see how they're feeling, what you're really saying is it's important for them to feel how they're feeling. Right. To understand, I should say to under, well, you may not necessarily feel it, but to understand how they're feeling and why. And then how do you pivot from there? And what happens is you, you might find that there's something you can give up in a negotiation that is valuable to them. And it's not money. And maybe it doesn't even matter to you. <laughs> and those are good things to give up. I once took a negotiations class, coincidentally, from somebody who was one of the, the world's experts, like brought in on major negotiations around the world to, to keep humanity alive kind of situations. And that was one of the most important points that he made was never forget. A lot of times when you're negotiating, the thing that will make it happen is to give something to someone that you don't even care about. But if you don't ask, if you're not picking up on what is it that people really deeply want, then it just becomes a negotiation of dollars or timing, et cetera. And I'll never forget that. In the house that we're looking at buying now, it has fallen out of escrow twice because the people who made the offer couldn't qualify for the loan. We don't expect to have that problem. We're sure we won't have that problem. So one thing that we're offering is take away the loan contingency. I'm thinking the other person is worried that, oh my God, I'm going through this again and, time. and they're going to be nervous until the loan, our loan comes through, right? That we could drop out of it no matter what we offer. And I'm thinking that this would be a great comfort. It's certainly even on an unconscious level, they're going to be gravitating toward this offer because they know that once they accept the offer, as long as the inspection works out okay, then everything's fine, right? So that's one thing that we're doing that we figured we can give as a, quote, concession because we don't think there's any chance that we won't qualify for the loan. And to the other person, it, it's probably relieve a lot of anxiety. Peace of mind. Yeah. I mean, but that's a really great way to feel into the experience, sense what it is that they need, and then find a solution that matches that need all without really having much dialogue. Right. Right. You figured that on your own. That's really great. I mean, in terms of just emotions, when my wife and I bought our house, we made a bid and we actually bid above the price only to find out that there were like nine or 10 other people that came in and actually bid more than we did. <laughs> but we got it. So the real estate broker at the time said, the reason you got it was because the seller saw who you worked for and thought that was really credible and <laughs> that you would be legitimate in executing. And I mean, I could have been a janitor at the, you know what I mean? I could have been on probation working at this company. All that mattered to him was, okay, that sounds legitimate. We're going with that guy. And that's not <sighs> rational. 
you know, it's just right. purely emotional. Um, speaking of purely emotional, I want to talk to you about a story that you tell in your book. It's in your chapter on the mind-body connection. And you tell the story of a man named Simon, who was part of the underground anti-Nazi movement in Germany in World War II. And one night, he and a few comrades were set to meet and to get on a truck together. But Simon got delayed. And as he took steps to catch up to the truck as it was moving, something stopped him in his tracks, some inner knowing. And moments later, all of his friends were killed on that truck. And so Simon, as you later reveal, was your dad. And as you say, his rational mind told him to chase after the truck and join his friends, but his body knew differently and held him back. So maybe this is a balance between what science is saying and what Deepak Chopra is saying, I don't know, but where did this knowing, this life-saving intuition come from, do you think? Well, as I said, your unconscious mind takes in a lot more information and data, including auditory and visual data that you're aware of. You don't realize it, but you're not aware of most of what you're seeing at any given time. You're focusing on something, but stuff outside of that, you're not generally aware of. And also things that are going on that you hear, you know, you heard of the cocktail party effect where you're talking to someone at a cocktail party and the rest is just a din of people speaking that you don't unintelligible until Someone says your name and then suddenly, oh, that's really clear. That comes into your mind. So I'm talking to you, Mark, and I don't hear anyone else. It's just unintelligible stuff. And then someone says, Leonard, and I hear that. I do make that out. And then I make out what they're saying about me. <laughs> because what happens is my brain is getting all those other conversations. It's just not transferring that to my consciousness until it says my unconscious mind, oh, my name. And then it pushes that up. So my father, some of the background that I think that's important is he was in the underground. They did these, these were routine things they did. They smuggled kids out, babies out of the ghetto where they were uh, imprisoned by the Nazis. They were made to live in a certain area and really without food and not much water and mistreated, et cetera. And it was all fenced in. That was uh, before they sent them all to concentration camps. And uh, so they would smuggle babies out. And they would also go out and do sabotage and stuff. And he was actually the head of the defense of the military part of the underground in that city. So what happens, he got stuck in the fence. He was holding the fence up for other people to get under. And then when he was trying to get through himself, he had no one to hold it for. And he got stuck and he was wriggling away. And these people were way ahead of him. On a, they had paid someone off to drive a truck. I don't know what the mission was. And they were going to go do something. And he was wriggling free. And then he had to decide, do I run after them, which is delaying them and also a bit conspicuous. I'm not like crawling quietly. I'm just like running, wait for me. <laughs> or do I just stay here and let them go when there'll be one person short? And, and he decided that he should go with them. And then his body wouldn't let him. And of course, he says that he wasn't afraid, that it was the kind of thing that uh, I said, it was kind of, it was routine for him. So it, it didn't feel like this was an extraordinary situation at all. But something wouldn't let him. And that something came from his unconscious mind. And your emotions is like a hunch. But your emotions, your core affect and your emotions are a very important part of those unconscious processes and your so-called hunches. And he just couldn't bring himself to go. And they went without him. And as you said, a few seconds later, the Gestapo came and killed them all, machine gunned them. And that saved him. But it was just an instance of showing how your body or your brain on a lower 
more fundamental level than your logical reasoning, knows a lot of things and is processing in a valued emotional way, in a positive, negative way that has to do with a kind of uh, unconscious value that it's given. It's like a feeling, but you don't feel it consciously and it makes you do things to preserve yourself. Did he ever tell you what he thought it was? He said he didn't know what made him not go. Interesting. Well, I'm happy that he didn't. Mm -hmm. Everyone, let's take a very quick break here and we're going to return with the heartbeat round. A quick reminder that Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership all around the world. Mitel also loves the upcoming Heartbeat Round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mitel.com forward slash mark. Larry, we have a podcast tradition where we briefly break away from our discussion and transition into what we call the heartbeat round. And what I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions about you, your life philosophy and influences, and then have you answer each one in a quick, instinctive answer, which we cleverly call the heartbeat. So are you game? I'm game. All right. First question. Your best advice to someone when they're feeling really angry. Reappraisal. That means if you're in traffic and someone cuts you off, you think, what an ass, how disrespectful, it makes me angry. Instead, you might think they're in a hurry. They're late for work. They're late for an important meeting and you have a lot more sympathy for them. It's a way of spinning things that changes the way you look at it that would diffuse your anger. It's a very important part of emotional regulation. I love that reframe, but I'm also going to answer the question for you in a way that you answered it in your book, which was to go take a walk. Um, I love that, you know, because it just changes your state of being. Before you start throwing all the plates in the house, go out for a walk and come back and decide whether you still want to do it, you know? All right. I thought that was really great. A piece of stoic philosophy you think we'd all be wise to remember. Don't waste your energy trying to think about how to change something that can't be changed. Just accept it and move on. One book that's had a profound influence on your life. Oh, the, The Periodic Table by Primo Levi. It's a bunch of short stories. He was a chemist that went through the Holocaust, and each story is a touching story with the title is a a different element. Each story is a different element, has a different lesson about life, and it's amazing. Wow, that's fantastic. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Uh, The sun will turn to a red giant. I've been been getting this lately. You're going to be a day older tomorrow. I'm I'm a physicist. So if you're saying, am I going to predict something about the human world? No way. All right. right, That's (laughs) That's too difficult to do. That is a takeaway. The sun will swallow up Mercury and Venus and maybe the earth. That I can say for sure. (laughs) Okay. Hopefully not in my lifetime. Uh, I I would say hopefully in my lifetime because that would mean that I lived five billion years. Oh, there you go. All right. Longevity. A subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. Mm, Emotion. (laughs) Again, I wish I had the plug bell. Where you think most of us will be in two years, working remotely all the time, working back in the office all the time, or a hybrid of both? I'd say hybrid. A trait you most admire in other people. Emotional intelligence. Your definition of happiness. To have a passion and the ability to pursue it. What could be better? both in your subjects of your work and your study and also in your subjects of your friendships. Besides love, what's the world need more of? Kindness. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? Empathy. Something that routinely makes you laugh. Absurdity. 
Uh, there's an old Groucho Marx routine that I think Chevy Chase did in a movie where there's a bunch of doctors in a room and we said, it's all just introducing each other. Oh, Dr. Jones, meet Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, <laughs> oh, meet Dr. Johnson. They're all shaking hands when he says, Dr. Johnson, meet Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones. And, and, and there's like 10 of them and there's all these different combinations and it's really ridiculous. And at first you think it's silly and then you just start cracking up because it's so absurd. I'm a huge Marx Brothers fan for that very reason. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Arrogance. Number one answer. Your synonym for the word heart. Humanity. I think humans have the most heart of other species. That's awesome. No one's ever said that before. And finally, a lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. <laughs> Diplomacy. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I, I, I have had a long uh, career of do, doing different things. I'm, I'm a physicist, and I always have been working in my physics on my spare time. I've been in and out of academia, and I was in the business world for a while. And having come from the academic world, I just thought, say what's on your mind. And uh, if someone's idea is stupid, just say so. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. And, and, you know, and in everyday life as well, sometimes you have to be diplomatic. And I believe it or not, I was about 40 when I learned that lesson. And um, hmm. <laughs> well, you learned it. And thank you for sharing that. We all have these experiences where we wish that we had learned something much earlier. And that's a really great example. So thank you. And you've learned to regulate your emotions now, which I, right? <laughs> so you're applying your own work here, which is great. So thanks for going through that with me. Thank you, Mark. It's been fun. Before we let you go, Leonard, I'd love to turn the stage over to you and ask if you have some final punctuating thoughts, knowing this is a leadership podcast, again, with an audience of workplace managers at all levels. What do you want them to not just always remember about your research and book, but to be fair, to go and read your book? Well, I would say to not to disrespect or discount emotions and rather to focus on them and to be aware of them and to understand that they aid your decision making. They don't hinder it. And I have plenty of examples in the book of how that works and that happening and from stockbrokers who pay attention to emotions doing better and so on. That's what I would say. I hope your consciousness can be raised about the importance and productivity of, of emotions and understand what they're for and how they affect you. And also, I talk about regulation. They evolved when we were in the wild. And just as we have optical illusions, we have emotional malfunctions too. And we didn't even talk about emotion profiling, which is also, I have a, a chapter on that in the book where you can take little tests and see what your tendencies are toward various emotions. And if any of this becomes too extreme. There are emotion regulation ways, things that you can do to regulate your emotions where necessary. So my advice is to understand how all that works and to increase your emotional abilities and intelligence, and that will make you a better and more charismatic leader. Leonard, thank you so very much. On behalf of my audience, I just want you to know, I mean, this, this as we were talking about offline, that this idea that feelings and emotions influence people far more than we realize is deserving of lots of attention and lots of discussion. And you've brought a lot of depth to this, to our understanding of it. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mark. Before we go, just another reminder, we're going to be taking a brief break. And until we return in July, I invite you to get caught up on all the episodes you may have missed. And please subscribe so you get our new work delivered hot off the press. And please, please, please tell all of your friends about us. 
Our theme music is Take the Eight Train, written by Billy Strayhorn and performed by the BBC Big Band Orchestra. And as always, I want to thank my great team for helping me make this happen. Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, and especially my producer, Eric Oz. And of course, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you so very much for listening. Mm-hmm.